this is Kara Foster from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Madisonville, Kentucky, and you're listening to our sermons podcast. And if you want to find out more information, you can connect with us at www.madisonvilledisciples.org or come in person at 1030 College Drive, uh, Madisonville, Kentucky. Subscribe and enjoy these podcasts. So this is going to be the last sermon in our Half True series that Kara has started. If it is your least favorite, just pretend that it didn't happen and that it ended last week. Uh, This was, I have loved going through this series. Uh, It has been really interesting. And as I was trying to pick mine, I had quite a hard time figuring out what truth I wanted to tackle. To me, outright lies seem a lot easier to talk about. I mean, most of us can detect an outright lie when we hear it. We may be kind and change the subject, or we may be awkward and let the silence sit in the air, but outright lies are easier to identify. In youth and children's ministry, lies are kind of par for the course. Whether it's an older student in high school who's telling a story and they either embellish it a little bit or they leave something out to make themselves look a little better, or whether it's a young child who tells this long, intricate, winding story, and you look up at the parents and they go, I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't usually call these lies. I like to think of them as untruths, because most of the time, there isn't any malice behind it. There's usually a good or innocent intention there. And you could say I'm a little soft-hearted. I've been accused of that in my life. But I think most people, even when they tell an untruth or a half-truth or maybe even a lie, are doing so for a reason. Today's phrase is one of those, like many in Kara's series, that she mentioned that, doesn't, that when we say it, it's not something that we say maliciously. It's something we say because we want to fill the silence to try to take care of the person who we're talking to. And as the title of the series tells us, there's at least some truth in all of these phrases. Time heals all wounds is an old phrase. A little over 300 years before the New Testament was written, a Greek poet said, time is the healer of all necessary evils. And then a thousand years later, Chaucer updated it in his famous work, The Canterbury Tales. As time has hurt, time does cure. Now, most of us who have used this phrase use it because we wanted to be helpful, to offer hope. And we probably believe it ourselves because we remember our own personal experience. We remember that in our own lives, the hurt that we felt has lessened over time. This is my experience. And I would suspect many of you have the same experience as well. But when I look closer and when we look closer, it's not just time that heals us. It's other things too. And before we read our scripture in Luke today, I do want to say, when I'm talking about healing and how we heal from things, I'm thinking more about emotional injuries and emotional pain and painful events in our lives. I'm not talking about physical and mental health, though I do believe for the faithful, our faith plays a part in these things. I don't wish to claim or even hint 
that I believe that faith alone will heal us from the diseases that we have, either physical or mental. My advice, listen to your doctors and your medical professionals in your life and seek help when you need it for something that ails your body or your mind. So as we turn to the scripture, since this phrase doesn't originate in scripture like so many others do, I was trying to think of someone's story that we may find to fit it. And after considering stories ranging from Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament to the book of Acts about the church growing to the book of Revelation, because I'm always trying to bring that in somewhere, I decided to talk about this story from the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 8. As he went, the crowds pressed in on him. And now there was a woman who had been suffering from a flow of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And then Jesus asked, who touched me? When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me. When the woman realized that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I think this is a pretty well-known story. I don't want to break down every part of it, but I do want to focus on one part for today's sermon. It doesn't pop out on the page on your first read, but this issue of blood that our unnamed woman is suffering with doesn't just affect her body. It affects her connection to her community and her faith. Because of purity laws that existed in this culture, she would have been perpetually unclean for more than a decade, not allowed to participate in the day-to-day -day life of her family or the faith of her people. She risked punishment for entering in a crowd, pushing her way forward, touching those who were unclean, and then to reach out and touch a rabbi? Jesus? Just Jesus' clothes being touched by this woman would have made him unclean. And that may sound odd or extreme, but in the Old Testament, we see that even touching the shadow of an unclean person required a ritual cleaning of oneself. No wonder she was afraid. When Jesus stopped everything and called out to figure out who touched his cloak, I'm sure she felt like a student in a class when the teacher goes, all right, who did it? And everyone pauses and freezes. And then some kids don't want to say anything. And some kids want to confess it was them, even if they didn't do it, because they're so afraid. And then some kids just want the awkward silence to end. But instead of chastisement for what she had done, she found affirmation. She found healing. Jesus goes a step further by letting the entire crowd know that it was her faith that made her clean. She had taken the initiative to seek out Jesus, and her faith was rewarded. And Jesus credits this faith with her healing. Jesus acknowledges the role that she takes in her own healing. And even though I mentioned earlier we're talking about emotional wounds, we can still take lessons from our famous unnamed woman. So if time doesn't heal all wounds, what does? What can we do to heal from the wounds that we carry and that we get just from living our lives? The first thing our unnamed woman shows us 
is that to heal, we must first act. Healing is not something that is done entirely passively. It requires our action. Now, that's not something many of us can immediately do. I know for me, when I'm stressed or in a time of where I feel pain or wounded, I need to take time to process what is happening. But eventually, I must act. And before she ever heard about Jesus, a decade before his ministry began, our woman sought out physicians, spent all the money she had, tried to find an answer so that she could rejoin the world. Pain has us do uncharacteristic things. We isolate. We can find ourselves wanting to retreat into ourselves so that we avoid any new pain. But by closing out the world in an attempt to avoid pain, we also avoid the opportunities to find healing. If she had not found the strength to push past the boundaries that had stopped her for so long, she never would have been able to move forward with her life. To find her healing, she moves towards God, towards Christ. And what surrounds Christ is other people. It takes us time, but eventually we must recognize in order to heal, we must find others to support us, uplift us, and care for us. If any of you have ever uh, been in a recovery program or have people you love in your life or family members who have worked and done recovery processes, you know that the community of support is a huge necessity to those gaining and maintaining sobriety. You find a community that helps you heal, and then the next step in that healing is contributing to the community, and then eventually becoming a sponsor and helping others heal. But everyone who has been through and benefited from one of these programs will tell you the same thing. You can't make anyone want to get better. It has to be an action that comes from a sincere desire to improve and get better. Without that first initial action, healing seems almost impossible. The woman here, we can assume, has a community to go back to. Somewhere that will celebrate her return and her healing who has suffered with her. That brings us to, I think, the second thing we can learn. That in our healing, we need community. We mentioned the way that recovery groups operate and create community. But I think we can look inward to see examples of the way people heal in our own faith community. When someone loses a family member, we offer this sanctuary for their service. We offer communion with the elders beforehand. We offer meals on the day of or for a prolonged illness before or after. Not to mention the spiritual support that they may not even be aware that they're getting. Look at this morning. Bill's quite sick. We have church members step in so that he has time to physically heal, but that the work of the church can continue. Our weekly ministries offer opportunities for that healing too. Seeing your children participate in programs that are loving and accepting can help you heal from church hurt that you've experienced. Being able to find a small group or a Sunday school class will help you find support and share what God is doing in your lives and in the lives of people you love. Building a house in a parking lot or decorating your trunk for a trunk or treat, these offer a way for people to serve others to bring joy to a community, even if they don't know where to start. We cannot think and name all the ways that this community of faith 
promotes healing, and offers so many places for people to find community, either for the first time or to come back after a break. Our unnamed woman offers us another way. She's offered a place to express herself and name who she is and what's been taking, taken from her in her pain and how she has taken her healing into her own hands. Jesus allows her to speak and not only speak. He affirms what she said, what she's been through, and the new life that she's going to have. This reminds us that the expression of our pain and the expression of our healing is an important step. Healing's not something that happens one day. It's a process, and it can continue for a very long time. When we've suffered a great loss or when we are healing from trauma, there isn't a day that you wake up and roll over and check a box and say, I'm done. I've healed completely. That's never going to affect me again. Time to move on. Yes, things get easier, slowly and over time and with effort. And at some point, it's important that we tell someone, that we show someone how we are getting better. I think that's one reason great art can come out of great tragedy. Because somewhere along the journey of healing, a person who loves art will need to let people know what has happened to them. Some channel it into poetry or music. Others, they just need to tell their story. In the church, we call that a testimony. Letting everyone know what you've been through and what God has done. Can you imagine a more impactful story than when this woman returns to her home and tells everyone the story of how for 12 years she was alone. She was by herself. But God. She met God. And Christ took her burden that had lasted for so long. We express our story for a lot of different reasons. One of the most famous biblical expressions of pain is the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon or one of his temple scribes at the very end of his life. It's a book that wrestles with aging and mistakes and whether at the end of the day, life is full of meaning or maybe not. If you've never read it, it's a short 12 chapter book and I would suggest it, but it definitely doesn't begin or end with any easy answers or simple conclusions. But I think the main point's pretty elegant. I believe Solomon says, while there is time, do the things you want to do in the world. Solomon expresses the regrets of delay, the regrets of growing older and weaker before everything he wanted to do was done. His expression one that may be hard and uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. Helped him find hope. And it made it into our scripture where for centuries it has influenced people, helping them find, if nothing else, someone else who is thinking and worried about the same things that they are. Finally, our story tells us one final thing. And it's the name of this series, or it's the name of this sermon, Time. Time helps us heal. Which probably feels like a weird final point, considering the title of this sermon and the way our series has been going, but that's why it's called Half-Truths. There's some truth to our statement. We don't instantly heal. We can hurt ourselves and others when we try to push forward and don't take time to heal ourselves. Time is an important part. Obviously, it isn't the only thing, but we need to find time. 
Time to reinvest our energy into caring for ourselves. Anyone who has experienced a big loss or a tragedy will tell you that time is something that helps. It just isn't the only thing that helps. Take time when you are hurt. Make time to do something that reaffirms your life and who you are and who you are becoming. Almost exactly two years ago, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, I lost my best friend in Kentucky. His name was Patrick Carpenter. He was also from Tennessee. He was my neighbor across the street in the first house that I rented. We played music together. We watched the Vols together. We talked about the past and the future together. And he passed away in his sleep suddenly and unexpectedly. I had the honor to perform his funeral a few days later, but that didn't close the hole that he left. But a few weeks after, I started getting in this habit of running a little bit in my neighborhood. And earlier in that year, I'd picked up my love of hiking and started doing that more. And now when I finish a long run, when I hike, when I get to the end of a trail or up a ridge or next to a waterfall, I think of my friend who is no longer here. I needed time to think like that, but I also needed to fill that time with things that affirmed my life and that affirmed the direction I was going. We use half-truths in our own lives when we feel the need to say something but do not know exactly what to say. We use them sometimes to avoid hard conversations. We use them sometimes to avoid the complexities of our faith. And we use them sometimes because we look at who we are talking to, a person that we love, and we want to say something. But the greatest thing about our faith is that the deeper you go and the more that you learn, the more you realize it is hard to use these simple phrases or find easy answers. They fall short because the God we love is constantly calling us to be more loving and more open and more compassionate. There may be truth in them, but they rarely ever tell the full story. And that's what I believe this series was about, us finding better ways to express our faith more fully and honestly, even when we find ourselves in uncomfortable situations. And I can't give you a replacement phrase for time heals all wounds. Time and expression and action and energy and love and faith, those heal all wounds and maybe not even all wounds. I don't have the answers, but that is what our series was about. So let us wonder together. Let us think about the ways in which God calls us to care for each other and ourselves. And let's not forget that we may take 12 years, it may take a year, it may take 15 or 20. But however long it takes to heal, God is always with us. And with you. Amen.